You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Okay, so I called mom and daddy on my way home, and I was like, y'all, Nina Pierce had four husbands. And mama said, four husbands? This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Episode two, The Bishop Overseer. Well, honestly, I didn't know anything about her until you and I started digging it up. It had never occurred to me to dig it up before. And so prior to this, my understanding of her was she just started the thing and um, started a manual and she was very revered because of it. But now I think she's savvy as hell. I feel like... Her business was church, 100%. But it could have been any business. On this episode, we dive into the early history of Emmanuel Church of Christ Oneness Pentecostal in Nashville, Tennessee, and the greater Emmanuel Churches of Christ, the Pentecostal assembly that it was a part of. I think this will help us better understand what led to the tragic events at this church, Back in that summer of 87, when Emmanuel Church of Christ Oneness Pentecostal was burnt to the ground, the mutilated body of the church handyman found inside. Certainly not the future Emmanuel's founding bishop overseer envisioned for this specific congregation when she founded it herself back in 1936. And as we're about to learn, Nina's church was not the first Emmanuel church nor would it be the last, but it was always special amongst the assembly because it had been Nina's. So who was this late matriarch as a young woman? How did she get so many people to follow her? And how about her beliefs and spiritual practices and how they strayed from mainstream Pentecostalism? Let's get into it. And we're going to start at the beginning. Nina was born in 1900 in Portland, Tennessee. Her family were farmers along the Red River. Her mother was Methodist, and her father was Baptist. But in her 20s, as many of us do, Nina went her own way. For her, that meant becoming a tongue-talking Pentecostal with dreams of preaching the gospel. And I'll flag now that I have yet to come across any actual recordings of Nina 
But this is what a good old-fashioned Pentecostal service sounded like in the South during her youth. And the first evidence of her preaching publicly is in the summer of 1932. That's when she shows up on the courthouse steps in Springfield, north of Nashville, totally alone with less than one dollar in her purse. Just a girl with a guitar who felt God was calling her to preach. And so she did. For four Saturdays in a row that summer, Nina rocked up to the courthouse and she sang and she preached for people who had never seen a woman preacher before. Yes, that is part of the history. And of course, I'm once again going over everything I'm digging up with Sharon, a former member of Emmanuel, who's curious about the true history of her childhood church. She started on steps at the courthouse and built this up. Yes, I do remember that. And Nina quickly became like a spectacle of sorts. First dozens and then hundreds of people gathered to hear her speak. Even her own father, who at first refused to come out and see her, eventually succumbed to his own, I don't know, like his curiosity, I guess, and was reportedly delighted to discover that his daughter was one of few preachers, in his opinion, that could, quote, stay on their topic. And to back that up, I have come across mention of her great abilities as an orator. There is no doubt that she was a truly gifted speaker, maybe one of the greatest of the past century. Well, that's impressive, ain't it? Sharon is reading from a small op-ed I came across in a Kentucky newspaper, printed well after Nina's death, and written by a man named Dick Dickerson. She had a way of getting her message of faith and redemption across like few people could. Dick also paints the picture of a woman who came from humble beginnings, but through the success of Emmanuel, eventually grew to enjoy the finer things in life. She was a colorful person who frequently arrived in chauffeured limousine and wore beautiful clothes, including a variety of fancy fur coats. Mrs. Geraldine Holder McDaniel told me. That is so Southern. (laughs) Mrs. Geraldine Holder McDaniel told me. It was really something to see this very special lady arrive with the driver and in that big car and how fancy she dressed. Oh, I'm man. glad today that I'm acquainted with the king. Praise the Lord. Yes. Woo, he's my drink and a ride and a thirsty land. Praise the Lord. As I mentioned, I've yet to come across any actual recordings of Nina, but I trust that her influence can still be heard in the pulpit stylings of elder Emmanuel preachers like Sharon's great aunt. Sister Jewel. I've enjoyed this revival, praise the Lord. I've been so revived, Brother Ronnie, praise the Lord. We'll get everybody to stand with us, and if you will, help us with this song. I've been having trouble with my throat, so it's no one, you know it, so praise the Lord. It Thanks to Nina, Sister Jewel is just one of countless women preachers and pastors in Emmanuel's now nearly century-long history. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Let's take it back to 1932, when at the age of 32, Nina was making her debut preaching on those courthouse steps. And at that point, I've determined that she was already into her second of four marriages— 
and I've checked census records. Serial monogamy was rare. Rare now, rare back then. On average in America, less than 3% of women get married three or more times. And especially with Nina being the leader of a church, you might imagine that divorce would also be incredibly taboo, right? However, as a church that leaned heavily on first-century Christian traditions, there are said to be three biblical grounds for divorce. Adultery, abuse, and abandonment. So, is that the story with Nina's three divorces then? Let's find out. Records show that Nina married her first husband when she was just 16 years old. He was a young soldier named Smiley Graves, and she was Nina Mae Gregory at the time, Gregory being her maiden name. But Nina and Smiley weren't married for more than three years. I know this not because I found any divorce papers, but because by November 1919, after Smiley comes back from the war, I found them both remarrying to other people. So was Nina cheated on, abused, or abandoned by Smiley Graves? I don't know. However, if we are looking for these biblical grounds for Nina's divorces, we definitely have evidence of that with her second husband. This was a guy named William Joyner. So I'm going to open up their divorce document. I love this. Is this it? Yeah. Okay. This is where we get to the T. Start up at the top there. They lived together happily as husband and wife until on or about blank day of February 1926. When complainant came into the bedroom from the back way of the house and found her said husband, the defendant, in bed together in her home in the act of adultery <laughs> with one Mrs. Why is the name redacted? Why is that name redacted? I know. A neighbor woman who'd always posed as being the best friend of your... Comp- <gasps> Lord, why? This caused your complainant to suffer a complete nervous collapse. Oh, she had she collapsed down in hysterics, didn't she? Loud had mercy fanner, um, from which she suffered for a long time and never completely... <laughs> and never well, completely recovered. Case, Oh my goodness, if this is the case, honestly, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah, keep going. Oh, there's more. According to Nina's claims in this divorce document, William Joyner admitted to her face that he loved another woman better than anything on earth. Oh, you didn't say that, right? Hold on. Oh, say it, say it. (laughs) He admitted to his wife that he told this woman that he loved her better than anything on earth. Better than anything on earth. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Better than anything on earth. But if the reasons Nina gave for wanting a divorce are true, then she was in an extremely volatile and dangerous relationship. Yeah, it goes on to say that he cursed her, abused her, and struck her with his fist. He better not. Yeah, he sure as hell did. Nina also claims that William Joyner left her without employment or means on which to live, sending her spiraling into the second nervous breakdown of their 13-year marriage. But check this out. The person who helped Nina get out of this marriage 
in the fall of 1932. The man who created this detailed tell-all divorce document was her lawyer, her divorce lawyer, and future third husband, W.A. Medor. Her solicitor, her lawyer, is her next husband, Walter Medor. Oh my God. She married her divorce lawyer. She married her divorce lawyer. Now, I don't know if that's how they met or if he saw her preaching first and then helped her get a divorce. That's more likely. But what I do know for sure is that he was a disabled World War I veteran. He was an accomplished aviator. He was a lawyer. And he had two wives before Nina, including his second wife, Gertrude Lillian Jones Medor, the daughter of a well-known pioneer family. And real quick, one cutie thing I've discovered about Walter and his wife Gertrude is that they shared a great love affair with planes. Oh my God, how cool. So they used to go to aerial shows, like aerial circus shows Ah. together, and he would be flying the plane and she'd be walking on the wing. Oh, well, they was a bunch of sinners then because she knows she was wearing a scandalous outfit to do that. Oh, you gotta know. She was showing her legs. Now, looks to me by the time Walter met Nina that he was well-divorced from Gertrude and about 40 years old. And my research suggests that was sometime in the summer of 1932 when Nina was preaching on those courthouse steps and growing her following. At that point, Walter was seeking appointment for the U.S. Attorney's Office. But somehow, after being deeply moved by Nina and her message, By the fall, he'd not only helped her get that divorce, he'd given up on his own career in law to become one of a core group of her earliest and most dedicated followers. Many at revivals, Hartsville, Tennessee, November 28th. Large crowds are attending the revival meeting being conducted by Mrs. Nina May Joyner of Nashville. Colonel W.A. Medor, attorney of Gallatin, are conducting song services. The services are being held in the courthouse. Wow. And that winter, I see Nina and Walter getting married in Ringgold, Georgia. Read, read, read this one. This will be fun. Have you seen this one yet? Uh-uh. Nina May married Walter A. Wood Medor on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1933. Girl evangelist bride of former Chattanooga attorney. Announcement of the marriage of Miss Nana Mae Gregory. Oh, she's finally dropped that uh, other married name. Yes. She's now dropped the name of her second husband, William Joyner, and she's using her maiden name again, Gregory. Miss Nana Mae Gregory, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. G.W. Gregory of Portland to Colonel Walter A. Medor of Gallatin, will be of interest to many friends here and throughout Tennessee. The wedding took place quietly on Tuesday afternoon at 2 o'clock. Both the bride and Colonel Medar are well known in the evangelical field, the latter having given up the practice of law to assist Mrs. Medor. He was her first convert. After their wedding, the newspapers reported that the newlyweds, quote, motored to Atlanta for a brief honeymoon. And it was definitely brief, because before the end of that week, I've got them over in the great Commonwealth of Kentucky 
hosting revival meetings, and officially establishing themselves as a chartered organization. Emmett Allen, Buford Burchett, Mrs. Walter Scruggs. There are 41 signatures on the official Emmanuel Church of Christ charter. I've seen it. Nina's right on top. Walter's name is under her, followed by the rest of the Emmanuel OGs. Mrs. Ray Baldwin, Ray Baldwin, Mrs. Lucy Baldwin, Mrs. According to church records, the idea to legally organize like this, it only came about because Nina and others in the group were reportedly being threatened with arrest for going around preaching without a license. Becoming a chartered organization legitimized their ministry and really set the groundwork for the future establishment of all these individual Emmanuel congregations. Well, so, if, if anybody would know about um, the legitimacy of uh, an organization, it would have been Walter, it sounds like. Sure, I mean, yeah, sure. it sounds like he served on boards. He, he, parliamentary procedure was part of his daily operation. Yep. So I'm sure that he just really guided her through that. I would not think that she would know how to do any of that. Definitely. These two were like, as far as what I'm seeing, were an incredible team. We have to they, know why they broke up, Tara. I know. Believe me, I'm all over it. Scouring newspaper items for signs or clues. 1934, I thought that was interesting. Nina preaching on marriage and divorce. Oh, come on now, what's she say? Yeah, read this one. From 1934. Revival attracts crowds. Carthage, Tennessee, August 14th. Record crowds estimated at from 4,000 to 5,000. I don't think that many lived in Carthage, so they were coming a ways. Are hearing Mrs. Nana Medor, evangelist of Nashville, and wife of Colonel W.A. Medor, former Gallatin attorney, who is conducting a revival here. Colonel Medor directs the singing. Mrs. Medor announced that her subject for Friday night will be marriage and divorce. But what does she say about marriage and divorce? It does not say. It does not say. And she married her divorce lawyer. Like, it's, it's so what? good. What? I need to know more. I, I need know. to know more. For now, I can say for certain they did eventually divorce. Because Nina marries her fourth and final husband, Charlie Pierce, a good six months before Walter eventually passes away in 1954. But... Let's keep Colonel Walter Awood Medor alive in our minds for now, all right? Because we're about to go deeper into these early years of Emmanuel. And what's weird is that he's pretty much scrubbed clean from Emmanuel history books, even though the historical documents that I've dug up show that he was a huge part of its growth and success. Okay, so a movement has been started by a group of prominent citizens in Smith County. That's amazing. A movement. Yeah, a movement. And from 1932 to at least 38, it's loud and clear that Nina's tent revivals were extremely popular. Tent revivals had been born out of the evangelical camp meetings originally held in the Kentucky frontier in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And the common messaging at these tent revivals it was often focused on those who were seeking healing or forgiveness. 
But they would evolve to a place where preachers like Nina set up these large tents in communities all over the South, sometimes for weeks at a time. And it sounds like Nina's meetings were extra special. There's countless reports of Christians being edified, backsliders reclaimed, hundreds baptized. I've read about farmers openly weeping in the fields after hearing her speak. And while they're singing and worshiping and praying for healing and putting that tent revival, tent up and down and up and down, all the while, Nina and Walter and the other hardcore early followers from Emmanuel are also planting these actual brick-and-mortar churches, primarily in Tennessee, Carthage, Logan Mill, Manchester. But they started in Nashville with not one, but two churches working together to serve you. There was Nina's church, which was originally called Woodbine, but would evolve into what we know today as Emmanuel Church of Christ, Oneness Pentecostal. And then there was also Walter's church in a different part of town called First Emmanuel. And his was first, planted in 1936. And then Nina's church Woodbine came the year later in 37. And there's tons of evidence that at first, these were two very intimate congregations. Mr. and Mrs. W.A. Medor would often preach in each other's churches, and the congregations would frequently get together for joint services and special occasions. But let's be clear, even though Emmanuel was Nina's show for sure, during the 1930s, Walter is shining too. Along with assisting his wife on the road, he publishes a gospel songbook. He's also given an honorary degree, a doctorate of divinity from a New Jersey university. And he, yeah, he becomes like a pioneer, really, when it comes to adapting technologies to the world of tent revivals. Check this out. Bible study nightly at 715 with Elder W.A. Medor, illustrated by Stereopticon Slides. A Stereopticon was basically like a slide projector. They also called them magic lanterns. And Walter would use them to illuminate images of the Holy Land, for example, images that would complement different sermon topics. But like I said, you're not going to find any of that in any Emmanuel record books. Not that I've seen anyway. No stories about Walter. Nobody that I've asked that wants to talk about him. And not a single mention of his church either. First Emmanuel. The literal first Emmanuel. What's up with this, dudes? There's definitely a story here, and I'm going to find out what it is. And he bloody helped build this church. You cannot tell me he did not. He was a massive, massive part of building this church, and he's not mentioned. So we know now that Nina started out preaching on those courthouse steps in Springfield, Tennessee, and that very quickly hundreds and even thousands of people were coming out to hear her. But what was she preaching about? For the first few months, sounds like it was a standard salvation message brought to you by a captivating woman 
with a real way with words, and the spirit of revival in him. And it was a message and a presentation style that had quickly caught the attention of the good people of Adairville, just across the border in Kentucky. Local newspaper reports tell the story that in September of 1932, Nina was invited by this Kentucky community to lead a four-week series of revival meetings. And these meetings wound up being considered very successful because there were hundreds of what they called professions of faith in their community. Workers were reportedly streaming in from the fields to hear Nina speak, and they were unabashedly giving their lives to God. And so were housewives and local businessmen, one of whom, on behalf of the people of Adairville, started financially backing Nina's new ministry and even bought her her very own revival tent. A huge coup for any evangelist at the time, but especially a woman. There were a few hundred female evangelists back then, mostly unordained, obstinate women who traveled from town to town, but women with a growing collection of churches a successful traveling ministry, and a tent? Those were few and far between, likely in the dozens, if that. But whoever this generous businessman was, he didn't stay her benefactor for more than a couple months, after Nina started preaching this new message. A message so controversial that he withdrew all his support and predicted that she wouldn't last six months. So, what was this new message? Are you going to start taping? Yeah, I'm taping. You can go right ahead. Okay. That's David Reed, Uh, Professor Emeritus of Pastoral Theology at Wycliffe College, a Christian evangelical seminary at the University of Toronto. He spent a lot of his career studying oneness Pentecostals. Yeah, well, I did my doctoral thesis, and then I wrote, you've got my book, or know about my book, right? Of course, In Jesus' Name, The History and Beliefs of Oneness Pentecostals is considered to be the most comprehensive and some say best study of Oneness Pentecostalism to date. Oneness Pentecostals are first Pentecostals and uh, they believe in very physical, very experiential kind of phenomena that occurred in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, both in Jesus' teaching and in the early church and the ministry of Paul and the missionary movement all throughout the New Testament. If you've been listening to previous seasons of Heaven Bent, you know all about these phenomena by now. But if you're new here, let me catch you up. There's speaking in tongues, divine healing and miracles. There's the ability to cast out demons. And within the Pentecostal church, these phenomena are referred to as spiritual gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit. Oneness has the same DNA in many ways because it was a split-off of the largest Pentecostal uh, movement probably in the world, which is the Assemblies of God in the United States. And in Canada, the variation would be the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. I have to tell you, it's a very complicated doctrine uh, that goes back, and there's lots of variations within it. The guts of it, though, it's that oneness Pentecostals are non-Trinitarian. So while mainline Pentecostals believe that God exists separately in three distinct forms, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, on the other hand, 
you've got oneness Pentecostals, like Nina, who believe that God merely makes himself known in three different ways. So he appeared to us in the human form of Jesus. He manifests himself as the Holy Ghost. And I know, especially if you're an outsider, it's like, what's the big deal here? What's the difference? Just trust that within the greater Pentecostal church, this was a shocking and disturbing new theory that leaders got really upset about. The first person who grasped onto this idea as a Pentecostal, uh, he was an Australian uh, evangelist originally. Frank Ewart. And around 1914, Frank Ewart and several other like-minded Pentecostals started to preach about and foster this controversial anti-Trinity doctrine. For Ewart, the jump was that if Jesus is the full revelation of God, rather than just part, then we should be very careful about what we understand to be true about the Trinity. This radical, Jesus-centric theology that this man, Frank Ewart, this Australian, was uh, grabbing onto and beginning to teach, has stepped outside the bounds of the traditional doctrine of the Trinity. He just said it's wrong. They do not understand. The Bible uh, is clear that Jesus is the full revelation of the one God, and we can talk about how he appears in history as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in God himself, they go back to the Old Testament, the, uh, the, the Jews have the, their creed is, Shema Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So they take it really quite literally. And they believe the church kind of got away from the Jewish monotheism that we have to go back to. And this shift in dogma caused a massive rift. This is how we get this really defined oneness branch on the Pentecostal family tree. So they basically uh, were uh, shunned from the movement and walked out when the General Council of the Assemblies of God in 1916 passed a resolution that was strictly and strongly Trinitarian. So from then on, they've been on their own and they started developing their own institutions. Institutions like Emmanuel Church of Christ. And although it's unclear to me where Nina first heard the oneness message, there's a ton of evidence that leads me to believe that when she started preaching on those courthouse steps, that she already had the intention of being a oneness Pentecostal preacher, but thought better than to share these controversial ideas until she'd gained a proper following. And once she felt she had, and she did start preaching this non-Trinitarian message, and really being so bold as to try and convince people to change what they've believed about Jesus and God their whole lives, that's when this Christian businessman from Kentucky pulled his funding. Nina would later say she told him she was not for sale and that it was better for her to obey God than man. He withdrew the flow of money, but he let her keep the tent. So do you know oh. who do you know who Nina Pierce is? Oh yes. Oh, yes. okay, great. Well, we, I can pick your brain about what you know. To my delight, Professor Reed is not only able to share with us his understanding of oneness theology, but amongst the estimated 24 million oneness believers in the world, he can also tell us more about Nina and Emmanuel specifically. I was the know first about them. You I do know about there. them. He says he first heard about Nina in about 1973. 
I, I was at this, this large conference of representatives from the, from the various groups, and I came across uh, somebody who was representing Emmanuel Church. And so I, uh, I inquired in, into that. But what was so fascinating was uh, that, number one, this is a church that was founded by and led by a woman. And of course, in that period of time, there just weren't a whole lot of them, mind you. And so it was just fascinating that she had built up that ministry, and it shows that she was very effective. And she had a most unusual a doctrine that I that you won't find, I don't think you'll find anywhere. And it, uh, it has to do with the communion service. For everyone in the back, communion is a religious rite that varies between Christian denominations. It normally involves ceremoniously eating a bit of bread or a cracker and some wine or juice, all as a symbolic reminder of Jesus' death, the bread being his body and the wine his blood. I hate to tell you, Tara, but y'all did it all wrong. Because <laughs> we had the truth. And let me tell you how you're supposed to do the Lord's Supper. We didn't even really call it communion. It was the Lord's Supper. Uh, I, th- I thought the word communion was highfalutin. Like that was, that was, you know, the first church of the refrigerator down the road takes communion. What was the actual communion items? I mean, in my church in the Pentecostal Tabernacle in Prince Rupert, once a month we would have communion on Sundays Mm -hmm. and it was always a piece of crusty bread and a tiny bit of grape juice. At Emmanuel, Sharon says the right way to do communion is with matzah bread and Mogan David wine. And you had to be baptized before you could take it and you had to quote-unquote clean out the leaven in your own self before you took it because if you took it unworthily you'd be damned. So, yeah, I remember my first taste of wine was, I think I was baptized when I was maybe nine. Now, I looked into it. On average, in the greater Christian church, communion is taken once a month. But again, Nina set up Emmanuel to do things their own way or her way. As a result, the Lord's Supper in her lifetime and still in the church today is observed only once a year. It would happen on what's called Maundy Thursday, Maundy being M-A-U-N-D-Y, not Monday, but Maundy. That's the name for the Thursday before Good Friday, or the day where Christians believe Jesus met with his disciples for the final supper before his crucifixion. We only had Lord's Supper once a year. I never heard it called Monday until I was an adult. Oh, and with the, the doors locked. It, it starts like at 7 or whatever time it starts, and the door is locked, and you do not get in if you're late. And once the doors were locked, they had the Lord's Supper. But like I said, at almost any other church that does communion or Eucharist or whatever you want to call it, the bread and the wine merely symbolize the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But at Emmanuel... Nina took the whole Lord's Supper thing to a whole nother level. She somehow came to believe that the body and blood, if you like, let's say the bread and the grape juice, literally or spiritually becomes the body and blood of Christ. Yes, I, I was taught that the unleavened bread 
and the wine, we drink wine, not grape juice. It did turn into Jesus's blood and body. Now, I can't say that I was taught that a whole lot. It was just kind of mentioned once as I was a child, when I was a child. And, and I feel like I was taken aback by it. It was not something that in the four walls of the church in Shelbyville, we talked about a lot. But I get the sense that it was definitely talked about in the rest of them. I think my dad, um, who loved science, you know, he was a child when we landed on the moon, loved Star Trek growing up. We had to watch Next Generation every night, every week when it came on. I feel like that was just a bit too woo-woo for him. So he didn't harp on it a lot. Also fairly unique at Emmanuel was that the annual Lord's Supper did not only include partaking in the body and blood of Jesus Christ, it also included a ceremonious foot washing. So tell me about the foot washing ceremony. It sounds very intimate, like touching okay. feet. That is an gross. intimate thing. Okay, gross. It could be gross, sure. <laughs> Moving on. When you, think, when you think about the foot washing though, yes, it is very intimate and intimate slash gross. But if, if we dried the feet with, our hair, like the way that it was described in the Bible, like I think that Mary did, that's just crazy. That would have taken it to a whole other disgusting level. <laughs> did you ever have your feet washed or was that always older people in the church? Oh no, the, the foot washing you could participate in at any age, regardless of whether you were baptized or not. But yeah, they separated the men from the women and we had, had a foot washing. We set chairs in front of the front pews, the, the two front pews, and then somebody sat in those chairs and somebody sat in the pew and there was like a plastic tub of water there and you just put your foot in and somebody sort of splashed water over it and then dried it. Yeah. So it's not like washing like with soap and water. It's just like splashing a little bit of water on there. More symbolic than anything, I suppose. And gross. <laughs> And gross. <laughs> it's, it's just so intimate. Feet are so, I don't even mind feet, but this is intense. And, yeah. And so, so what we would do, because we hated it, we would, um, like my sister and I, we would get with uh, our cousin, hook up before and plan who's washing each other's feet so we didn't have to wash somebody else's. <laughs> when the foot washing was done, Sharon says they would all, the men and the women, meet up again in the sanctuary. I also want to take note on this episode about how Sharon mentioned several times here about how you couldn't take the Lord's Supper before you were baptized. Baptism being another first century Christian rite that was not only extremely important to Emmanuel, it was also executed differently than mainstream Pentecostals, 
specifically because of their oneness anti-Trinitarian beliefs. So while mainstream Pentecostals typically baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Emmanuel, like other oneness believers, baptize strictly in the name of Jesus only. So, my baptism. I remember like crying and not knowing why I was crying. Sharon was nine when she got baptized, same as me. My sister and I, we got baptized on the same day. And we didn't have a baptistry at the time. We did baptize in the river, down the Duck River, down at Mullins Mill. And we were baptized. And it's, you know, baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And they dunk us and then pull us back up. Yeah, it's full immersion and baptize in Jesus' name because any other way is just wrong. Do you remember it? You were nine. Do you remember, would you describe it as a spiritual experience for you? Did you feel no, moved or? No, I, I do remember feeling pressured because I, I was, I think, I think I felt nervous and nervous. God, I was nine and I can't believe I was thinking these thoughts, but nervous about how the dress would cling to me once it was wet. If it would be exposing me in some way. We didn't have like baptism robes or anything. So you wore your own clothes. I remember feeling pressured because when they pull you up out of the water, like the pastor, you know, raises your hands and everybody's worshiping and they're clapping and they're rejoicing. And I felt pressured to be like, and should I speak in tongues? And should I like, I, but I didn't feel that way. I was nervous if I was looking at me, I was wet. How's my hair? I had my bangs sprayed and teased and now they're not, you know, like whatever, like, I, I don't know. I just, I just remember being like, just let go of me, let me out of here. Like, I just wanted to get out. On the next episode of Heaven Bent. Now that we've helped Sharon get some clarity about the birth of her childhood church, and we all have a base understanding of Emmanuel's core beliefs and spiritual practices, I think we're ready to help Sharon unpack more about what it was like to grow up in this environment, especially during the 80s and 90s, when dark forces were truly at work in the Pentecostal church. This story of a satanic conspiracy included the belief that missing children were being kidnapped and sacrificed in a ritualistic manner by satanic cults. Living as a Christian is a wonderful experience. Amen. Living for the devil for the drag is. Living for the devil for the drag is. Also, still to come this season. Prosecutors have given notice that they will seek the death penalty against John David Terry, who is charged with killing and beheading the church handyman and then setting fire to his church. The prosecution, of course, would use at every opportunity the fact that he was a minister against him. 
So I've read in old newspaper articles that there were rumors or a belief even amongst some people that a satanic cult was involved. If you want to talk cults, we can talk cults, but there wasn't any uh, satanic cult here. There was a cult, the, the church was a cult.